As we continue our series on the topic of worship, the thing that we've returned to the Lord's house to do after a couple of months away due to the COVID crisis, I invite you to uh, turn your attention with me to John chapter 4, the fourth chapter of John. This is at page 888 in your pew Bible, if that's helpful to you. Worship, that is uh, corporate worship, is, as we've seen in this series, the crowning event of our lives. It uh, punctuates our every week until the weeks of our lives flow into the eternal Sabbath. We're unsurprised, therefore, to find the church making the highest priority of this, of worshiping together, of gathering ourselves together, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, for worship all through Scripture and all through history. We've learned or been reminded of the fact that the service of worship on the Lord's Day is the renewal of His covenant with us. He comes and renews that covenant. It is also the representation or recapitulation of the gospel based upon uh, God's Word. And then, based on these facts, the liturgy, that is the, the order of worship and its parts, takes its shape. Last week we had much to say about the physical nature of our worship, how our physical bodies must be engaged in the worship of God. How we move our bodies, our postures, what we see, even what we smell and taste, all are of tremendous importance to faithful worship. And there's much, much more that could be said on that last point, the physical participation in worship. But we would not lose sight of the fact that worship, to be faithful, must be much more than skin deep. Much more than just physical. Just as Jesus was telling us over and over again during the time that we spent in the Sermon on the Mount, which I hope to return again soon, our religion must reach the heart, must rise from the heart, must engage the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart rings with a familiar air on our ears from just a few months ago when we were studying it together. For they shall what? See God. Well, we would see God. We would truly meet with God in the worship of His house on the Lord's day, which means that our worship must, simply must, be a matter of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we ask that it may be the case, and more and more so, and now specifically because of the encounter that you have with our hearts through the power of your Spirit, working in the Word that Scripture says never returns to you void, always accomplishes that for which you sent it. So now we pray that it will do so in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 4, we'll read the first 26 verses. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Much of today's debates over worship in the church, the so-called worship wars, sound a whole lot like the dilemma, or rather false dilemma, as it turns out. The uh, dilemma, I say, that this woman poses to uh, uh, our Savior at Sakar. Is it right to worship here or there? At Gerizim or at Jerusalem? 
Today the questions buzz around whether we should worship God with these kind of hymns or those kinds, in this kind of building or in that kind of building, with written prayers or with spontaneous prayers, with vestments on our ministers or without them, with classical or with contemporary music, with this posture, with that posture, and on and on the list goes. Very important questions. Please don't get me wrong here. Very important questions to ask and to answer. We ourselves have given very, very careful thought to these very sort of questions over the years, haven't we? Indeed, the new colors in the pulpit robe this morning indicate the seriousness of our desire to perfect our worship physically, outwardly, to conform more and more to God's revealed will in Holy Scripture. But dear flock, there is behind and beneath all such questions one matter that is of prior importance and deeper. Jesus gets right to the heart of it in his response to this dear woman's inquiry about the proper locale of worship. She tries very hard to enlist this amazing stranger in the already ancient worship war of her day, a debate that stretched all the way back to the division of the kingdom of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. Actually, it seems like more of a dodge tactic on her part, doesn't it? Jesus having exposed her current immorality. But however the question has been raised, it has... And it opens the way for this deeply profound response from Jesus concerning the heart of worship. He answers her, verse 23, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And what is Jesus talking about well, worship in jesus time we know had become for the most part carnal that is strictly fleshly worship and superficial the issue raised by the samaritan woman at the well is but an indication of the symptom of the disease that had totally infected the worship of god a deadly formalism had fossilized worship into cold, moribund ritual. Worship had become an almost entirely external exercise. Worship on the outside without engaging the, high, the inside. Worship offered physically but not spiritually. Engaging the body perhaps, but not the soul. Of course there were exceptions. There always had been. We remember the lively worship of Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, and of Simeon at the temple, uh, who celebrated the news of Jesus' birth for the gospel blessing that it was. But Anna and Simeon and other faithful worshipers, theirs was faithful worship not because of, but rather in spite of the state of the church and of her worship in the infant Jesus' day. And as I say, the pathetic state of worship in Jesus' day was nothing new. You know, regardless of location, whether in the tabernacle or in the temple or in the synagogues, you know, 
worship had become woeful, rote worship. Worship that amounted to little more than going through the motions. It was already by then an ancient vice that had been rebuked by generation after generation of prophets before. Perhaps we'll take a look closer at them together another time. At Jeremiah, for example, who rebuked the people for their superstitious trust in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord as a talisman against evil. Or or Isaiah's denunciation on God's behalf taken up by Jesus himself in the Gospels of a people who worship God with their lips while what? Their hearts were far from him. What they were condemning is worship that goes through the motions, but with a cold, disengaged heart that remains untouched and uninvolved. Actually, we can look way back, way, way back, can't we? To very near the beginning, back to Cain and Abel for this very sort of thing, can't we? The worship wars started early and hot. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, remember, because he was a worker of the ground. And Abel brought an offering from his flock, the firstborn and uh, fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And we know how that battle in the worship war turned out, don't we? Filled with rage, Cain slays his own brother Abel and spills his blood on the ground. Now the commentators go round and round over what it was that made one offering different from the other. You know, why one was acceptable and pleasing to God and the, and the other not worthy of Him. Was it that one was an animal sacrifice and the other was fruit and vegetables? Yeah, was it that the one was the firstborn but uh, the other not the first fruits and so on the debates go? The writer of Hebrews gives us the interpretive key to the debate anyway. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. See the difference? Faith made the difference. In other words, whatever the outward differences might have been, and whatever it might be, we'll find out someday, at root it was this, a matter of the heart. The problem with Cain's worship was a heart issue. It was not offered by faith. Cain became the father of the formalists, didn't he? Of those whose worship follows forms, maybe even good and faithful forms, solid, even biblical liturgy. But it's not offered by faith. It's not offered from the heart but let's be honest with ourselves how many of us can say that we have never worshiped God in just exactly that way we've gone to church we've dutifully sung the hymns with our lips 
We bowed our heads while the preacher prayed. We stood and knelt at the appropriate times and on and on, but we were never engaged with our souls, with our minds, with our hearts in that worship. The problem was not with the forms, you see, not with the the liturgy. In that sense, the problem was not with the worship. It was with the worshiper. This, what we might call carnal worship, is worship which in some senses engages us physically but leaves us spiritually cold and dry and uninterested and unstirred. All such carnal worship, observes the late Dr. R.C. Sproul in his work, The Quest for God, is not worship at all. When we attend the service of worship but keep our spirits uninvolved, we dishonor the one who is worthy of worship. It is to, it is to says Sproul, it is to commit spiritual treason. Worship in spirit and truth, on the other hand, is worship given with the full and purposeful engagement of all of our being, especially at that point where we meet God most intimately in the soul. It is worship given to God in accord with the psalm we sing from time to time at the beginning of our our worship here. Not dissimilar from the hymn that we uh, We sang together today, the 103rd Psalm, in which we call our own souls to this work. We say to ourselves, Oh, come, my soul, bless the Lord, thy Maker, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. When we start our worship with those words, or the words with which we did this morning, it is the declaration of our intent that, and our desire that our worship be given, yes, with body and spirit, with our hearts, not just outwardly or ritually or perfunctorily as a mere formality. Here's a most wonderful definition of worship. I read it to uh, some of you many Many years ago, I think over 20 years ago, from William Temple's classic work, Readings in St. John's Gospel, but it bears repeating today because a couple of you may have forgotten it since then. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of our will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration. Surely, William Temple has begun accurately to unpack what Jesus means by worship in spirit and truth. The kind of worship that God desires, and as Jesus says so strikingly here, the worship of God, that God rather, is seeking from us. It is heart worship. Worship that is with the heart, not just 
with the body. God is looking. He's seeking that kind of worship, those kind of worshipers. He's seeking, and, he want, and we, we want his eyes, don't we? We want his eyes to stop right here at this sanctuary to, to find what it is that he's seeking. True worship, spiritual worship, worship that involves the heart. So what about the heart? How must our hearts be involved in the worship of God to be described, like Jesus does here, as worship in spirit and truth? That's a question I've been pondering, of course, for quite a long time, studying and considering. And so far, uh, what I see in Scripture, I think, can safely be um, said in three ways about the heart and about worship. First, our hearts must be engaged in the worship of God. Second, our hearts must respond in the worship of God. And third, our hearts must be renewed, refreshed in the worship of God. First, our hearts must be engaged in the worship of God. Now, no surprise there, right? No news to you because we have been making our way for a long time now through the Sermon on the Mount, paragraph by paragraph and sometimes sentence by sentence. And what we have found over and over and over again was that the failure of the worship of the Pharisees was heart failure. They came with gifts. Nothing wrong with that. We come with gifts into the Lord's house too as we ought they tithed, and nothing wrong with that. We, we tithe. Jesus never rebuked them for their tithing. He never rebuked them for their praying. It was the soulless way that they did it that was the problem. The, the superficial skating on the surface of the ceremony with cold, distant, dead hearts on the inside, that was the offense. So the remedy to our own similar failure in worship, dear flock, it's not overly mysterious. It is a purposeful work to stir our souls for worship, even as we're on our way to the house of the Lord for worship, as we're making our way here in anticipation of being in the Lord's presence and, and then participating with our hearts in every part of the liturgy. You know, from the very start of worship, we come expecting to hear the Lord's voice. We remind our, ourselves that, that the call to worship is God's call. We, we, we speak to our own hearts by soliloquy, by, by telling our own hearts, listen, God is about to call me to worship. Yes, I, okay, the voice is the minister's voice. Yes, with the outward ears, but with the inward ears. Listen, God is calling. God is saying, make a joyful noise. Serve me with gladness. Know that I, the Lord, am God. Engage your soul then in song. 
So many of our opening hymns we sing, like the psalmist, to our own hearts. Oh, come my soul, we sing to ourselves. And then oftentimes we list the reasons, don't we? Why our hearts should worship God. All that God has done for us, this and this, and, and who God is, this and this and this, the benefits he's bestowed on us. Oh, my soul, who should worship the Lord like you? We say to ourselves, and then comes the time for confessing our sin to the Lord. And it's time for our hearts to break. For us to know that feeling. I know you've known it, especially at a time of deep conviction when your heart just sinks like a rock in your chest. That sadness. I've blown it again. Yes, we provide words in the bulletin for us to confess our sin together. We've learned that from the Scripture, so we're obeying the Word of God to do it. We, we know that we've grieved our Savior and that it's good and right that we confess together. But let us never utter a, a word of confession of sin in this worship that is not sincere, that is not true and from within. You know, the prophet Joel, he addressed that matter specifically in his prophecy. You remember what he said? You remember he says to God's people, all too superficial in their relationship with him, all too superficial in their worship. Remember he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Render your hearts. Rend your hearts. The psalmist agrees in Psalm 51, a prayer we often use, even in this house, to confess our own sin to the Lord. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd bring it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Give to the Lord our tithes and offerings. Stir up your hearts with gratitude and love for the gifts he bestowed. That's why we sang this morning, with grateful hearts we bring. With grateful hearts of love for the gifts he's bestowed on us. Let it, let it be the occasion of active thanksgiving to God and the intention that, yes, he should have our gifts, but with them he should have our hearts consecrated Lord to thee we say take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee take my heart it is thine own it shall be thy royal throne you get the idea there's a great work for you to do from your heart engaging it in the worship of God if your worship is going to be what Jesus says the father is seeking if you're going to be the worshiper that God is seeking Second, our hearts must respond. Remember that we said in worship that God renews his covenant with us, that this service here is God's renewal of the covenant with us. God comes to us every week. He comes to us in this sanctuary, and in some way or other, he basically says this, I am yours, and you are mine. What shall we do? Should we sit there like bumps on our log? Shrug our spiritual shoulders? You wouldn't respond that way. 
to anyone else who came to you and showed you the kind of care, who said, I love you. No, we reciprocate. We respond from our hearts. Remember when we were in Exodus 24 together? God confirms his covenant with the people through Moses who delivers the words to the people, the rules of God. What do they do? Well, they answered all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. <laughs> yes, they responded with their mouths, but those verbal words were the overflow of their hearts. It was their cri de cour, the cry of their hearts. Same with Isaiah, remember, who encountered the Lord in the temple. His heart responded to the holy, holy, holy God, and his heart responded by throwing him into a face plant on the floor before God. His heart responded to God then later. After God called, he said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. He was speaking from his heart. But notice that in all of those cases, the response of the heart, and please note this well, in every single one of those cases, the response of the heart is to God's grace. That God calls us to obey Him and follow Him. What is that? But grace. Even the conviction of sin that we sang about in our opening hymn and sometimes we say that the holy spirit thrusts us through with sense of sin that conviction that we experience in worship that too is a gracious gracious gift of god to us you think about it how gracious is it else we never would turn from our sin hating it being grieved by it to receive the unspeakably wonderful gift of the forgiveness of it, of being cleansed white as snow. So our hearts must engage. Our hearts must respond. Now, those of you young people, you're studying your grammar now, so I've got a question for you. What kind of verbs are those? They must engage. They must respond. What kind of verbs are those? They're both, I think I heard it, active, thank you, active verbs, right? And they're going to require that you act, that you take hold of your heart, that you speak to your heart, that you reason with that heart of yours. These are things we must do. But there's another side to the Bible's teaching when it comes to our hearts and, and worship. And, and we might even call it, if we're going to stick with our grammatical terms, the passive. That is to say, worship in spirit and truth must not only rise actively from our hearts, but it's also had to have an effect on our hearts. So third, worship must refresh and renew our hearts. I'll say it one more time. Notice these are not so much things for you to do as they are things for you to have done to you, for you, willingly to receive. 
refreshment, renewal. Now remember, we also described our worship previously as the representation, the recapitulation of the gospel, right? Every week. Worship is fundamentally a gracious interaction of God with his people. A rehearsal of his redemptive truths every week. The weekly repetition of every gracious act of the liturgy is intended to refresh your hearts. To strengthen your relationship with God's Son. To renew your sense of the goodness of the Father. Our love for Christ and even more our sense of His, His love for us grows and deepens through faithful worship. Not through a robotic repetition of you know, liturgical forms, but by a true and genuine transaction between our present Savior here in this room with us and our souls in worship through the use of these liturgical forms as they are meant, intended to be used in the spirit of them. This happens as you open your heart to receive the grace He conveys at every point in this worship through the Word, through the sacraments, through all of it. And isn't, brothers and sisters, isn't this exactly what you and I stand most in need of? What could you possibly need more than this? We need constant refreshment. In fact, no matter how far you've come in the Christian life or how mature you are, no matter the stage of your maturity, you and I need constantly to be refreshed in the basics of the basics of the gospel, don't we? It always comes back to this. No matter where we are, we need to be refreshed in a sense of God's holiness. The gravity of our sin the depths of his love, the certainty of his forgiveness, the dignity of his call to serve and the grace by which we do it, the eternal, glorious destiny that stretches out before us all who are in Christ. What really could you possibly need beyond these? And you have them. You have them in the worship of God when you open your heart and receive. And not only refreshment, but renewal. No study on worship can possibly fail to find itself eventually standing there with Paul at the head of the twelfth of Romans. After 11 gospel chapters filled with the news of God's grace, of justification by faith, of God's 
gracious election, his choice of, of us, his sanctification, of, of peace with God, of life through the Spirit, in some, the gospel, based on all of this that has come before in Romans, Paul comes to this, to this appeal, to this beseeching of you. He says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's what Jesus was talking about too. The worship, the spiritual worship, worship in spirit and truth. But consider the effect of that worship on us according to the next verse. It's nothing less than transformation by the renewal of your mind. Renewal of your mind, of your heart. We're not going to be able to, to tease those two apart, mind and heart. The renewal of our minds, of our hearts. It's, it's not just a gaining of information in worship, but rather it's the entire way of thinking of our hearts, the shape of our understanding and of our affections, and of our longings, and our desires, and our motives. They're all transformed through the encounter that we have with God in this sanctuary. Engage. Respond. Be refreshed. Be renewed. These are the things that must happen with our hearts if the worship of this house will be the worship that God is seeking and you the worshiper that he seeks. How will it happen? How is this going to happen? By grace. And only by grace. So our worship actually becomes a cycle of grace, doesn't it? You see how this works? Worship brings us back constantly to the gospel of grace. And this serves our deepest needs and our highest aspirations. And having fed freshly on God's grace in worship, our hearts are able to turn in genuine worship, praising God for His grace. It's all of grace through Christ. When Jesus tells this, the woman at the well at Sychar in Samaria that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, he is saying that all of this is possible only through him and the salvation he has come into the world to bring temple once more worship is the submission of all our nature to God it's the quickening of conscience by his holiness the nourishment of mind with his truth the purifying of imagination by his beauty the opening of the heart to his love the surrender of the will to his purpose. And all gathered up in adoration. That's 
they'll worship the Father. Our Father is seeking. May He always find it here. Amen.